Welcome to the sermon podcast of Old Bridge Baptist Church. Our mission at OBBC is to make disciples of Christ who connect with God, others, ministry, and the lost. We pray that the following sermon will encourage you in your walk with Christ today. Visit us on the web anytime at obb.church. So if you would, please navigate to Romans chapter 2. That's where we're going to be camping out here this morning as we continue our verse-by-verse study through the book of Romans. Let me pause for a word of prayer. O Lord, we require, Lord, your assistance in not only understanding your word, Lord, but applying it especially God, our our hearts are so often hard and impenitent. And uh, Lord, we desire so much for you to soften our hearts, Lord, and to speak to us. Call us back to yourself, Lord, and even bring new life where it's necessary, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I came across this anonymous letter this week, written to the Apostle Paul, but found by a man by the name of Christopher Ashe. The letter goes like this. Dear Paul, I've just read the the second half of Romans chapter 1, and I congratulate you on a vigorous, refreshing expose of evil. I agree with you that it is disgusting when people not only behave badly, but actually approve of bad behavior. It did me good to read your chapter. You'll be glad to know that I, for one, do not for a moment approve of those who practice those terrible things. On the contrary, I recognize them for the evils that they are and agree that such people are without excuse. I look forward to chapter two, yours sincerely. And the name seems to have gone missing. You know, most people can look at others whom they perceive to be less righteous than themselves and agree that perhaps the wrath of God should fall upon them or could or should fall upon them over there. But we are often much more forgiving own sins, aren't we? Why is it that we are so prone to condemn in others what we so readily condone in ourselves? Well, Romans chapter 2 teaches us plainly that in condemning others for what I condone in myself, I'm really condemning myself. Mark Dever said of Romans chapter 2 that Paul's aim here is to burn down any vestige of trusting in our own righteousness. Here to take, the, take a look at the chapter as a whole, we're only doing first five verses this morning, but Paul really is just burning down any vestige of, of anything we might trust in that pertains to our own righteousness. And that, that's a mental image that has really captured my attention as I've studied this text 
You know, if the wrath of God is truly being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, then doesn't it make sense that that men would try to seek shelter? And we seek shelter in all kinds of of things. We instinctively try to hide from from the gaze of of the righteous and, and holy God. And Paul is here in Romans chapter 2 lovingly burning down all false hopes of shelter against the wrath of God. He must do it. Paul must tear down all false refuges in order to drive us to Christ. Remember the the broader context here of, of of where we are in Romans, especially if you're just tuning in with us for this study. After ever so briefly introducing the good news, Paul started the letter out here in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 by just so confidently and, and excitedly declaring, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then also to the Greek. Paul unexpectedly pivots here in in verse 18 and begins to talk about the wrath of God. Look at verse 18. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This verse really is the theme verse for the first section of the first major section of the letter of Romans. And this section having to do with the the wrath of God being revealed extends clear through chapter 3 and verse 20. And Paul delivers this bad news in in three movements. And we looked at the first of those three movements movements last week. Something I called the the tragic exchange. Romans chapter 1 verses 19 through 32 Paul focuses in, really, even though he doesn't come right out and say it, he's, he's really zooming in on the conspicuous sins of the Gentiles. But he says here that, that all people are without excuse since God reveals himself plainly through his creation. But the problem is we suppress that truth, don't we? And we exchange that truth that's readily available to us through God's creation, we exchange it for a lie, for the lie of idolatry. We begin worshiping really anything and everything other than God. We worship the creation rather than the creator. And as a result, God gives us up to our sin. It's a tragic exchange. And as I said, while this is certainly true of all people, Paul's primarily implicating the Gentiles here for their conspicuous sins. And then as we turn the corner here and head into into chapter 2 this week, we're going to be looking here as Paul begins to turn his attention from the Gentiles, the conspicuous sins of the Gentiles, to addressing the Jews, his brethren. Paul here in this chapter calls out the religious right for our hypocrisy. 
as Mark Dever put it, Paul's about to turn from talking about the openly depraved in chapter 1 to the secretly depraved in chapter 2. Or another way to say it is he's turning from speaking of those who are openly immoral to those who are apparently moral. If last week's passage in in chapter 1 reminded us of the sins of the prodigal son, then this week's passage is going to remind us of the sins of the elder brother from that parable. What Paul says here in the first five verses is that our hypocrisy is without excuse. Remember where we left off last week in verse 32 of of chapter 1, Let me just reread that verse here. Paul, after giving a long laundry list of vices, he says, Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Right? So in other words, not only do they know that those things are wrong, not only do they do those things, but they're actually cheerleading and encouraging others in those evil practices. You know, we, we spoke last week about how misery loves company, right? You not only, want, not only do you do these things, but you want to be affirmed in it, and you want, don't want to be alone in it. You know, you want, you want company in, in your guiltiness. And I can just imagine the religious Jews who are reading this letter sort of giving a hearty amen to Paul here as he lambasts the the Gentiles for their conspicuous sins of idolatry and and homosexuality and all all the other laundry list of things he lists here at the end of the chapter. They're amening him and patting him on the back and saying, just like that letter I read at the beginning, thank God that doesn't describe me. I think Paul can just imagine hearing the religious Jews piping up and saying, well, I'm not a cheerleader in these things. In fact, I condemn them. And so Paul turns his attention now to that imagined response in the Jews, and he says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice The very same things. Notice how pointed this becomes here as as Paul directs this to a single imaginary opponent. This you here isn't a plural you like y'all. It's a singular you. And and it's really a shift because in chapter 1, Paul was speaking sort of more generally in, in the third person plural, they and them. Right now, suddenly as he addresses his own people, the Jewish people, he imagines here this singular you, this, this imaginary opponent. But I don't think we should conclude from this that Paul is talking to anyone specific because you'll remember that Paul's writing to the Roman church where he really doesn't know most of the people whom he's, he's writing to. Rather, this is a, a powerful technique that, that scholars refer to as diatribe. 
in diatribe, you don't just speak generally to the masses. It's a much more pointed discussion as you imagine talking personally with an individual opponent. Now, I'm certain that it didn't take a lot of imagination on the part of the Apostle Paul because I'm, I'm sure Paul had countless discussions like this with his fellow countrymen throughout the course of his ministry, right? I mean, I, I have no doubt that, that as Paul begins to share the bad news with his countrymen, he comes up every time with this, this resistance to uh, any notion that, that, that the, the Jewish people are equally standing underneath the, the judgment of God. And so Paul says here, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. Why? For in passing judgment on, on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. You know, all we're doing in condemning someone else is showing that we without a doubt, are without excuse because we know better. If we can look out at someone else and say, wow, look at what they're doing and how wrong that is, <laughs> all we're doing is giving God evidence for the fact that we know that that's wrong and then when we do it, we're doubly condemned. We're condemning ourselves. When we practice in an ongoing way the same sins we condemn in others, even if it is a less conspicuous secret form of that sin. You know, Jesus talked about this in the Sermon on the Mount again and again. You know, he, he pressed the fact that it's not enough just to not commit adultery. It, we, we ought not to look at another person with lust in our heart. It's not enough just not to commit murder we shouldn't hate someone with, with the anger that causes murder, right? We commit murder in our hearts. And so every, when we practice in an ongoing way the same exact sins, maybe it's just in a, a less conspicuous secret way in the hiddenness of our own heart, we are doubly wrong because clearly we knew better. <laughs> what excuse do we have left at this point? Paul said back in chapter 1 that, that uh, the Gentiles were, were without excuse because of the, the revelation of God in his creation. It's plainly seen. Well, the, the Jews have that, plus they have the law. They know what's right. They know what's right and wrong, and yet they, they continue to do the wrong. They practice the exact same things. Paul says, you certainly can't claim that you didn't know. The word for this is hypocrisy, isn't it? Acting like you yourself would, would never do something and even condemning it in someone else, all the while your heart is secretly full of the same exact sins, even worse. A great biblical example of this comes from the life of King David. It's our Old Testament reading this morning. King David committed adultery with his neighbor's wife, with one of his own men from his army. His, his wife, while he was away at battle, he committed adultery with Bathsheba. And when 
confronted about this by the prophet Nathan over that sin, Nathan tries to draw David out and sort of expose the hypocrisy of what he has done by, by telling this fictitious story about a rich man who had many flocks. And one day this rich man has a visitor come and instead of selecting a, a lamb from his own flock to feed his guest, he looks out at his neighbor who has, who's a poor man and only has one little lamb and he goes and he takes that little lamb and he, he prepares it for his guest instead of taking from his own flock. David immediately spots the sin in that in someone else. We're so good at that, aren't we? Full of self-righteous anger, he says, As the Lord lives, the man deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold. He's ready to kill the guy and to have him pay back fourfold what he took. But then the prophet Nathan turns to David, and, and he opens up his eyes, and he says, You are the man. This could happen to any one of us, couldn't it? Hypocrisy. David's own words of condemnation toward another only proved his own condemnation. In condemning others for what you condone in yourself, you're really condemning yourself. That's what verse 1 is really teaching here. Look at verse 2. Verse 2 basically says, you agree here that God's judgment is true. Paul, remember, Paul is speaking to his fellow countrymen. Verse 2 says, we know, he, he identifies with, with them here on this common point of orthodoxy. He says, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Right, this is common Jewish orthodoxy. And literally what this says here is that we know that the judgment of God is according to truth. Nobody disputes that. But Paul is going to say here in the very next verse that even though we know this to be true, there seems to be a disconnect here between what you say you believe and what you are practicing. Don't you see it? He says in verse 3, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God. Paul says you're fooling yourself. Just because you can point out the sin in others doesn't exempt you from the bar. Paul says, do you you think you will really escape? (laughs) That you somehow have a pass? It gets even worse here in verse 4. Paul says here, you're showing contempt for God. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? It's human nature, isn't it? You do something that you perceive to be a little bit wrong, and 
you look at your own sins and you say, well, my sins aren't as bad as someone else's sins. And I really don't commit the, the big sins. And even if we're feeling a little bit guilty about the things that we ourselves have done, we look around at our life and we realize, hey, things are pretty good for me. Surely, if God disapproved of me, things wouldn't be going so great. And we conclude that maybe our sin is no big deal after all. Maybe God doesn't judge little sins like mine. Maybe after all, I am pretty righteous. But you see, God is so often good and kind when he could be rightly severe. He is so often slow to anger and absolutely overflowing with forbearance and patience. In fact, Paul says that God is rich in these things. God is a rich man. But that kindness and forbearance should never be mistaken for a approval of our behavior because even the, the most moral among us is unrighteous before a holy God. We aren't to presume upon the goodness and patience of God. Instead, understand, Paul says, that God's kindness is actually intended to lead you to repentance. If God wasn't patient, if he didn't forbear his wrath upon us for our sins, then no one would have an opportunity to even live, let alone repent. Unfortunately, we often need some kind of suffering in our lives to, in a sense, come to the end of ourselves, don't we? It's not often through the good times that we seek God. It's not often through prosperity that we look to God and repent of our sins. No, often God allows some form of suffering in our lives so that we might come to a blessed end of ourselves. Kent Hughes said it well when he said, no one should assume he is all right with God just because life is easy for him at a given time. God calls people through sunshine as well as rain. Peter says in 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should seek repentance. This is the richness of the, of the mercy of our God. He is far more merciful and kind and forbearing and patient than any man. None of us would, would suffer the kind of rebellion and the kind of of turning uh, our back and, and, and shoving our fist up in, in someone's face. No, we wouldn't take that from anyone the way God takes it from us, but he is so abundantly patient with us. But don't mistake that patience of God for anything other than kindness that is intended to lead you to repentance. 
Paul says here in verse 5 that you're actually storing up God's wrath through your impenitence. Look at verse 5. He says, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. You know, this word here, storing up, is often used positively in the scriptures. In fact, Jesus, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, he spoke of not storing up treasures here on the earth, but rather storing up treasure in heaven. In Proverbs chapter 2, the Solomon speaks of, uh, he speaks of um, storing up wisdom. But here, Paul uses it negatively, this idea of storing up. You're not storing up treasure, you're not storing up wisdom, but through your impenitence, you are storing up for yourself God's wrath. Self-righteous, hard-heartedness, and impenitence are worthy of wrath, just as worthy of wrath as idolatry and homosexuality and all the vices that were listed in chapter 1. In fact, perhaps even more worthy because to whom much is given, much is required. In condemning others for what I condone in myself, I'm really condemning myself. Now as we think about how to apply this text to our lives here with the remainder of our time together, I can't help but wonder, first of all, is it always wrong to be judgmental? Paul here is railing against the judgmentalism of his fellow Jews, and rightfully so. And I I think we have to ask ourselves this question, is it always wrong to be judgmental, to render judgment as a, a man or a woman in our sinful human flesh? And the answer to that question is that it depends. It depends on what you mean by being judgmental. If by being judgmental you mean hypocritically condemning people for the same exact sins that you yourself are committing, like what Paul describes here in Romans chapter 2, then yes, it is always wrong to be judgmental in that sense. It is always wrong for us sinful fallen human creatures to be judgmental of other sinful fallen human creatures. Only God is the judge. Only God can and should truly render judgment on someone else, should truly condemn someone else. And thank God that is not our job. I am so grateful that it is not my job to, to judge or condemn anyone else in this world. On the other hand, I think you have to be careful here because the scriptures in so many other places throughout the Bible call on God's people to be discerning and to hold to the truth in love. And the problem is that many times people 
will call that being judgmental, simply holding to the truth, even in love. You'll, you'll quickly find that if, if you try to share the warning of Scripture that we've been talking about here in Romans chapter 1, 2, and, and even into chapter 3 here, if you try to share that warning of Scripture with somebody else about the coming judgment of God on all sin, that is going to open you up to the charge of being judgmental. I can't tell you how many times I've heard it when trying to just simply share the good news with someone that people will, will often throw back in your face Jesus' own words from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Hey, even Jesus said, judge not, lest you be judged. Right? So don't tell me about my sin. Even Jesus said, don't judge. That's probably one of the, the most well-known bits of Scripture in, in all the Bible. And, and people latch on to that little saying and, and unfortunately take it out of context to the point where they, they even deny the judgment of God on sin at all. It's basically saying, hey, don't warn me about the coming judgment. Don't warn me about my sin. But that's obviously not the point that Jesus was trying to make Jesus himself warned of the coming judgment more than anybody else. And Jesus and, and subsequently Paul never meant that we shouldn't decide if something is right or wrong and, and be discerning of the truth. Right? We need to be discerning. And they never meant that if something is wrong that we shouldn't say or do something about it. This isn't the muzzling of God's people. So what's the difference here between these two types of, of, of judgment? Isn't it the manner in which you do it? Isn't it the absence or presence of pride as you do it? You know, the kind of judging that Jesus was warning us against when he said, judge not lest you be judged, is the kind of judging that pridefully takes issue with the speck in your brother's eye. Meanwhile, you haven't first considered the log sticking out of your own eye. It's pride. And Jesus wasn't saying, you know, don't care about your brother. I know your brother's eye is full of a speck. But he's not saying, don't worry about him. He's saying, first, address yourself. Repent of your own sin. Then you will be able to see clearly to help your brother who has a speck in his own eye. I think as if we follow Jesus' own advice here in Matthew chapter 7, and, and we address our own sin, repenting of our own sin, I can guarantee you, you'll be a lot humbler in the process as you then seek to speak to someone else about the bad news of, of their sin. Right? It's humbling. Repentance is humbling. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1 warns us. It says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. But keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. I think a, a good question to ask yourself is, 
where do you see yourself standing as you're addressing someone else's sin? Where do you see yourself standing when you deliver to someone else the bad news about their sin? Do you pridefully elevate yourself to the position of standing alongside Almighty God, Judge of heaven and earth in His holiness? Sort of like, hey, me and God, the holy ones, are now rendering judgment upon you. Are you side by side, shoulder to shoulder with God as a peer? Or are you seeking to show yourself to be better than that other person to dismiss them in anger or frustration or to to simply drive them away from yourself? Are you seeking to just get rid of them and dismiss them, be done with them? Or are you approaching someone else out of love with the goal to rescue and restore and to help and in complete humility? I think the absence or presence of pride makes all the difference between the two, doesn't it? And I could add to that the absence or presence of your own repentance first. And the reason I I bother to, to talk about this this morning is because I think the fear of being perceived as judgmental can actually keep us, the people of God, from sharing the good news. We don't want people to think we're judging them. But think about it. The Apostle Paul just told us all that we deserve the wrath of God without excuse in the process of sharing the gospel, didn't he? Paul just condemned you. He just condemned me. Is Paul, the Apostle Paul, being judgmental? Could we say, Paul, you're judging people for being judging? No, for you see, Paul has come to the place in his own life where he has come to grips with the fact that he is not God's judge here on earth. He is not God's enforcer. If you know anything about the the testimony of the Apostle Paul before he came to Christ, he looked a lot like God's enforcer. He looked a lot like he was doing God a favor by judging everyone around him. He was going around persecuting those who didn't agree with him, throwing Christians into prison and overseeing their persecution and even death. That was the Apostle Paul before he came to Christ. But then by God's grace, God opened up his eyes to the truth and Paul realized he had a big old log in his eye and that he wasn't suited to help anybody until he first repented of his sins. And now that Paul has repented of his sins and he's been humbled by that and grappled with his own depravity, he is now in, finally in a position to help others by warning them. To be a help to them, not in judgment and to destroy them, but to help them and in love. And Paul, I don't think, was just blowing smoke here when he said in 1 Timothy chapter. 1 and and verses 15 and 16, when he called himself the chief of sinners, I think he believed it because Paul knew that he had been persecuting the very church of God. 
He says this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. That's what I'm talking about. Paul had been humbled himself, so he was in a position to seek to rescue others. So I think one thing that that helps in talking to others about their sinfulness is to first humbly acknowledge your own sinfulness. Make it clear quickly that you are not looking down on them as someone who is sinless but you are rather warning them as a fellow sinner. You know, I've heard it said before that sharing the gospel with someone else is sort of like one beggar telling another beggar where he can find some bread. That's the, the attitude of humility we need to have as we talk with others about their sin. We need that kind of humility that is, I think, quick to throw ourselves under the bus, so to speak. Admitting our own depraved condition apart from the grace of God. Let's talk a little bit more here before we close about being judgmental and hypocritical because I, I don't feel like we've quite gotten to the heart of the application yet. Let's be honest. The majority of of people who are watching this live stream this morning uh, could be described as church people, aren't we? And these verses here in Romans chapter 2 are, after all, directed at religious people, at religious Jews. And so, we, the, the people who are watching, it's not someone out there, not someone else. We, myself included, must take this passage to heart in particular because we are the religious. And we must not put any false hope in any ridiculous, ridiculous notion of our own self-righteousness. Paul, in, I think, that spirit of humility and love that I was just talking about is really putting a torch to such inadequate shelter from God's wrath as our own self-righteousness, right? We must not put false hope in any ridiculous notion of our own self-righteousness. It's not going to be adequate, and Paul is, is setting a torch to it. And it might sting a little bit, but it's for, your own, it's for our own good. We need to hear it. How easy it is for us to know all the right things without really knowing God. How easy it is for us to be critical of others without stopping to consider the own deplorable state of our own hearts. How easy it is, especially for preachers, to talk the talk and not walk the walk. How easy it is to worry about what other people think without ever truly worrying about what 
God thinks. You see, people can be easily impressed by external displays of righteousness, but God is the one who looks at the heart, and He is not so easily fooled. You know, I can't help from reading the the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, can't help but notice that Jesus in his life and ministry was hardest upon the religious right of his own day, upon the Pharisees. And I think Jesus' parable of the the Pharisee and the, the tax collector really sums it up well. I just want to read that for you this morning from Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 9. Said Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. It's exactly what we've been talking about this morning. He said, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus said, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled but the one who humbles himself will be exalted couldn't say it any better than that mark dever said that our tendency to criticize puts us in a morally endangered position you know, as long as, as we're in the flesh, we are going to struggle with sin. As long as we're in the flesh, there's always going to be a gap between our profession of faith and our walk. None of us is the Savior. None of us is Jesus. Jesus is the only one that you could look at, look at and say, man, he doesn't have even one shred of hypocrisy about him. Jesus always said the right things. He always did the right things. His profession always matched his practice. And so, as we look at our own lives, I'm, I'm certain that we can all think of, of hypocrisy in our own lives. And, and let me just encourage you, as, as you think about those things, and as the Spirit of God points those things out to you this morning, our only response to that is to humble ourselves and repent. How do we avoid the pitfall of hypocrisy? It's through a routine practice of repenting of our own sinfulness. And being regularly humbled by our own desperate need of God's grace. We are never going to be completely free of our self-righteousness while we are in this flesh. Mark Dever continues here. He says, we can use this though, as Paul does here, as evidence to burn down the house of our own self-righteousness whenever we might be tempted to stay there. So whenever we see 
instances of hypocrisy in our own lives, instances of self-righteousness. Let this text and, and, and text like this remind us that we need to burn down any shred of refuge of self-righteousness. Dever says, don't, don't remain there, don't take a nap there, don't climb up and look down on others from that self-righteousness. Burn it down. He says, next time you're tempted to speak critically against someone else, try coming alongside of them instead. May our church be marked by the humility that comes only through true repentance. May we burn down any vestiges of our self-righteousness that we may truly trust only in the righteousness Christ. As we sang this morning, in Christ alone, my hope is found. And Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. You're my one defense. You're my righteousness. Oh Lord, how I need you. Let's pray.